Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature The Crown of Thorns, The Importance of Being Single, Organ Rhythms and Self-Healing Concrete. But first up, here's the news with James Miller. A team of scientists at the University of Notre Dame have identified interesting effects of glucocorticoids in shifting our internal body clocks. Their work showed that treating the heart at specific times of the day with glucocorticoids could cause a forward time shift in the 24-hour regulating cycle of the heart. Interestingly, the same treatment applied to the liver caused a backwards time shift. The human body contains numerous clocks with many of the body's organs maintaining their own circadian cycle in synchronisation with the body as a whole. As Giles Duffield, who leads the research team, explains, the components of our body, such as the heart, liver and brain, can be divided up as to function differentially, not only in a spatial sense, but also temporally. The research suggests there may be a desynchronisation of the body's localised clocks arising from jet lag, rotational shift work, or taking synthetic glucocorticoid treatment. Duffield notes, at some point in the time zone transition, your brain might be in the time zone of Sydney, your heart in Hawaii, and your liver still in Los Angeles. This may have serious health implications. The paper was published on October 23, 2012, in the PLOS One journal. A team at the Delft University of Technology have put bacteria to work to create self-healing concrete. Normal concrete is susceptible to cracking, which if left unchecked over time, can compromise a structure's strength. Normal concrete is susceptible to cracking, which if left unchecked over time, can compromise a structure's strength. The Delft researchers have isolated and embedded a calcite precipitating bacteria into the concrete mix. When a crack forms, the bacteria, through their normal metabolic processes, will produce calcite filling the crack and stopping it from growing. The technology has the potential to dramatically reduce the ongoing maintenance cost of concrete structures and to remove the need for human intervention in dangerous or hard to access locations. The team is continuing their work to optimise the bacteria's calcite production within the concrete mix. Glow-in-the-dark roads, the smart highway by Heidmans and Studio Roosgaard in the Netherlands, have developed paint that soaks up sunlight all day and then glows brightly in the dark for 10 hours after sunset. They've taken the glow-in-the-dark technology for toys and scaled them right up. They've also developed temperature-sensitive paint to create snowflake designs on the road that only appear when the road is icy and dangerously slippery to drive on. This kind of paint has been previously used on baby food containers. The first few hundred metres of glow-in-the-dark weather-indicating road will be installed in the province of Brunband in mid-2013 followed by priority induction lanes for electric cars 
interactive lights that switch on as cars pass, and wind-powered lights within the next five years. The studio has 20 ideas for smart highways that they will be rolling out across the world. Indian road authorities have expressed a keen interest as they have a lot of blackouts. They hope to sell to the US and UK where dimming and switching off streetlights is seen as a way of saving money. The Smart Highway won the Best Future Concept Award by the Dutch Design Awards 2012. I hope Australia takes notice. Preventing hurricanes before they land. Emeritus Professor Stephen Salter from the University of Edinburgh has designed the Salter Sink, which removes heat from the ocean before it can feed into a tropical cyclone or hurricane and wreak havoc on land. He takes the old idea of bringing up the cold water from the deeper ocean to cool the hot surface water that fuels the monster storms and updates it by designing a wave-powered station to do the mixing. His design is a raft made from a circle of old tyres 100 metres in diameter which will support a vertical thin plastic tube, which plunges down 200 metres in length. The tube is in warm surface water at its top and colder deeper ocean water at the bottom. The raft will have a device to convert horizontal wave motion into pumping warm water through one-way valves, which pulls the warm water so that by its own weight it sinks to the bottom of the tube into the cooler depths. Hundreds of these devices would be deployed all year round at strategic spots off the eastern tropical Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico, preventing storms from becoming massive on their way to the mainland. The reused tyres come free, so it's a very economical way to prevent hurricanes, if it works. Professor Salter is partnering with Intellectual Ventures to design and produce the Salter Sink. Bill Gates was present at the brainstorming session, so his name is also on the patent. Professor Salter says he believes the sinks could help keep the ocean temperature below the magical 26.5 degrees Celsius, the point at which cyclones grow. The cold water is nutrient-rich, so getting it to mix with the warm surface water will feed the ecosystem as well as cool it down. The problem is that there's no way to predict how the ecosystem will react to this extra food. You may get an explosion of fish and all different species, or you may get toxic algal blooms. Another issue is that the colder water will release carbon dioxide into the air as it's brought fizzing up from the deep, contributing to global warming. Deep water stores much more carbon dioxide than surface water. Other oceanographers point out that there are shearing currents in the eastern tropical Atlantic that they believe will just flatten the tube. There are critics who think it just can't work. Intellectual ventures don't actually produce products, they just invent them, so they need someone else to step in and license the patent and then do something with it. The interesting thing is that mixing the waters to prevent hurricanes isn't the only thing you can do with the temperature difference between the warm surface water and the much cooler water 200 metres or more down. You can also use it to generate electricity in what's known as an ocean thermal system. In the end, you've mixed up the water and evened out the temperatures, but if you use the warm water to heat a working fluid like ammonia, it will boil and the steam can drive a turbine to generate power. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at twistcr.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the community radio network and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. It-
It's a scientific fact A scientific fact It has to be correct It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific fact It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon It's been proven to be true Like one and one are two It's checked and double-checked a fact that can be backed Because it is, because it is a scientific fact It's a scientific fact That there are belts of radiation in outer space Which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome It's a scientific fact A scientific fact It has to be correct It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific fact Even scientific facts are not perfectly exact, but they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time. It's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct, it has to be exact, because it is, because it is a scientific fact. And that was Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans with It's a Scientific Fact. Next up, Armand Cross explains the importance of studying single-cell science. The National Institute of Health in the United States has just started a program for single-cell research, and the first grants will probably be given out early next year. What they want to do is to fund new techniques in this emerging field. So why would you want to look at a single cell? We all know that most of the cells in your body have the same DNA as all the others. But it turns out that they don't have exactly the same DNA. So all the cells in your, in your body have come from the same fertilised egg. So they have pretty much the same DNA, but not the identical DNA. And the other thing is that they don't express the same genes. And that's part of the reason that you can produce different types of cells like blood cells and skin cells and liver cells. So normally when scientists want to look at something like which genes are expressed in your liver or your skin, they would take a piece of the organ, say a piece of liver, and they would grind it all up together, taking you know, thousands or millions of cells at a time. And then they'd put them in their DNA sequencer and find out what the, what the genome was. Now the thing about this is that you're mixing up lots of different cells. Um, so you're getting a consensus of what the DNA in your liver looks like, but you're not finding out whether there's any difference between your liver cells. And if you had a liver cancer, you might actually be very interested in finding out whether that tumor was behaving in the same way in every cell or whether parts of it were becoming different from the other. So, there are several reasons why you might care about the differences between single cells, this heterogeneity and diversity. And one of them is these cancer cells because cancer cells sort of evolve. They, uh, they mutate and they change their DNA in, in ways that allow them to grow without any control. So cancer cells are growing without control and uh, 
depending on what mutations they have, they can, can develop ways of, say, moving around to form tumours in other parts of your body. And it would be interesting to know um, what genes different cells in the tumour had um, that were mutated so that you could find out what the cancer was likely to do or what drugs it was likely to respond to. Another place you might want to look at the difference between single cells might be in understanding sexual reproduction better. So every sperm is slightly different because sperm are made via meiosis. So rather than copying the DNA precisely, you have uh, a recombination event where you mix up the genes. So you're not just getting diversity in children because the mother and the father had different genes, but also because the way that the eggs and the sperm produced allowed this recombination of genes. And if you wanted to understand the details of how that worked, you'd want to look at these single cells. Uh, the other advantage of looking at sperm in terms of single cells is that they are on their own, floating around in a fluid, uh, rather than being attached to each other, and that makes the science a little bit easier. Uh, the third example I wanted to mention of, of why you might care about the difference between single cells is uh, nerve cells. So it turns out that uh, nerve cells in their DNA have these long interspersed elements. And these long interspersed elements are bits of DNA that can move around within the genome. And they're important in things like the immune system and the nervous system, where you want to have cells that are slightly different. So it's likely that the cells in your brain, those, those nerve cells, are all slightly different from each other genetically. And if we could understand that, we might know more about how they connect to each other and how that's important in normal development and in disease. So you might be looking at cancer or sperm or nerves. And you might want to get these single cells, but the question is, how are you going to do it? Because it turns out that separating cells into, into individual cells from the others around them is a serious technical problem. Um, there are a few ways to do it. Um, all of them are difficult and expensive. There are cell shorting machines, and you can also do it uh, by hand with a pet. So that's a technical difficulty with this single cell genome science. The other thing that can be tricky is uh, you get a lot of sequencing errors. So if you grind up the DNA from lots of cells, you have a big sample of DNA. Uh, but if you, and so when you when you amplify that to uh, to sequence it, you get less errors. Whereas if you've got a tiny sample and you've got to amplify it, it's like cutting the same key and then cutting the copy again and again until you know, your key doesn't fit in the lock anymore. So you can accumulate these errors because you've got such a small sample size. So single cell research is an emerging field and it has these kinds of technical problems. But the National Institute of Health thinks that it will be important for understanding diseases like cancer and they want to fund these projects. And, and I've talked about uh, sequencing type single cell projects quite a lot, but they're also looking at, at funding things like uh, looking at cells intact in tissues um, and you can do things with single cells with with fluorescence and microscopes so there's plenty of possibilities in this single cell area and hopefully this new funding is going to help us understand the importance of understanding individual cells um, separate from their surroundings and that was arwen cross about all the single cells <laughs> used to be the size of rhinos Raccoons were the size and ferocity of bears Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that It's a fact, 
Yeah, deal with that. The moon is moving away from the earth by four centimetres a year. And when it's gone, we are all well and truly buggered. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. Blue whales are bloody massive, their tongues weigh as much as an elephant. Its heart is the size of a car and some of its blood vessels are so wide that you could swim down them. Oh, it's a fact, so you deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. Your average pillow of about six years old is made up from one tenth of skin, living mites, dead mites, and mite dung. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, you deal with that. It's a fact, deal with that. Ducks, quacks don't echo. Fact. It's a fact by Sam Greenwood. Coral reefs are delicate ecosystems, and worldwide, many of them are under threat. The Australian Institute of Marine Science recently released a report stating that the Great Barrier Reef has lost a considerable amount of coral, partly from population expansion of the Crown of Thorns starfish. Oliver Featherston interviewed Dr Hugh Sweetman from the Australian Institute of Marine Science about the state of the reef and the various threats posed to it. Well, Crown of Thorns starfish, like a lot of starfish, have uh, the propensity to produce huge numbers of offspring. So one large female can produce like 50 million eggs in a year. And uh, with that sort of potential for growth of populations, you get uh, many years when there's very few starfish, and then suddenly you get big outbreaks. And uh, because the crown of thorns starfish is a coral-eating animal and a large animal, um, when you get large concentrations of them, they eat a lot of coral, and they can reduce the coral cover on a reef from 30% 30% of the bottom to less than 5% of the bottom in just a couple of years. So what's causing this population expansion of the crown of thorn starfish? Uh, well, there have been three waves, waves of outbreaks on the Great Barrier Reef uh, that we know about um, since, since there have been divers in the water, I guess. Uh, one was in the 60s, one was in the 80s, one was in the 90s, and there's maybe another one starting now. They seem to be linked to big floods. So uh, I think 1959 was a big flood year, and so then we got outbreaks in in the early 60s because the starfish take a couple of years to mature. Um, The same was true. 1974 was a big flood year in Brisbane, and uh, again a few years, a couple of years later, we saw outbreaks in the north, and the same. in 1990 was uh, a big flood year in uh, North Queensland and again we had outbreaks again in 1994 so there's this relation to to big floods and of course the last three four years have included two very wet years and so the situation seemed to be uh, right again. You mentioned that floods are related to the population expansion do tropical storms also contribute to this phenomenon? Uh, Well not not directly um they i mean the only, the only only connection would be that uh when you have la nina weather systems uh you tend to get more storms and more rain and so 
what, what we think is causing the association with uh, between rainfall and crown of thorns is that more nutrients get washed into the the Barrier Reef Lagoon waters, and this this means that uh, the microscopic algae on which the larval crown of thorns feed um, explode and become more common, and that increases the survival of the larvae. And as I said, there can be a huge number of larvae, most of which don't survive at all. So a very small change in in the survival of the larvae can have a very big consequence for populations. So how is the population expansion being remedied, or how is the impact of the population being reduced? There, well, there are a lot of a lot of initiatives uh, along the Queensland coast in the catchments that drain into the Barrier Reef to uh, fix up land use so that less fertilizer and less sediment washes into the streams and then into the into the ocean. So there's been a number of uh, initiatives like that. The only real way that we know uh, to deal with the crown of thorns is um, what the tourism operators do around Cairns in the Whitsundays, where they actually send divers down and inject them individually. Now, that's incredibly laborious, and uh, it's, it, require, it's, it requires some skill to see the animals in the first place, and it also requires people to be careful so that they don't break the coral in the process of killing the starfish because that's what you're trying to protect. So it works, it can work uh, in protecting very small areas like the snorkeling areas around tourism pontoons. But in terms of stopping the waves of outbreaks that pass down the barrier reef, it seems unlikely that you could ever deploy enough people or uh, deal with the hundreds of thousands of starfish involved to um, make a difference. If the impact of the crown of thorns starfish can be reduced, what potential is there for repairing damage in the Great Barrier Reef? Uh, from our from our studies, we see that um, well, the the actual uh, damage to the coral is about four percent, but the actual net decline is only about half a percent. So the coral is growing back. That's the difference is because the coral recovers. So if we could just reduce the crown of thorns starfish a little bit, we could then get the coral growth back into positive territory. Now, how much you could really um, uh, reduce the effect of the crown of thorns by controlling water quality or by direct effects, um, I wouldn't be too uh, confident. But if we could reduce the populations by half, you could get it back into positive territory. And then over given long intervals between cyclones, you could then uh, get net growth of coral as opposed to the loss we've been seeing for the past 27 years. Can anything be done to reduce the effects of bleaching or tropical storm damage? Well, that's really a global uh, issue. It's, I mean, bleaching is uh, uh, usually associated with um, warmer water temperatures, which are a direct consequence of uh, global warming. Um, clearly, fixing global warming is not only an Australian problem, but a global problem, and uh, it requires global initiatives. The advantage of uh, fixing the crown of thorns is that it possibly is related to things that happen in Australia, and so we have control over it. So is this problem with the crown of thorns unique to Australia? Oh, no. Crown of thorns starfish occur across the entire Indo-Pacific, from uh, the uh, west coast of Central America across to the Red Sea and East Africa. So it and in, and in all those places, it's been a problem in terms of uh, reducing coral cover at, at various times. Um, 
the crown of the crown of thorns on the barrier reef, I guess, is just one of the better studied bits of it. So, how many uh, coral reefs worldwide are under threat? It depends who, who you believe, <laughs> um, but but generally a lot. I mean, there there are a number of uh, global threats from uh, global warming leading to higher water temperatures, leading to more frequent bleaching events. There's the issue of uh, ocean acidification, where the ocean becomes more acid because of dissolved CO2 from the atmosphere. And since these are animals that have carbonate skeletons, uh, the process of depositing the carbonate becomes harder under more acid conditions. Um, Plus, an awful lot of coral reefs occur in places where there's rapidly expanding coastal populations who depend on the reef for uh, resources, and they uh, are changing the ecology of reefs in that way. That was Oliver Featherston, speaking with Dr Hugh Sweetman about the Great Barrier Reef and the Crown of Thorns starfish. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you're not in Sydney, then perhaps you could record a story and email it to us. You can send email to diffusion at 2SER.com, that's diffusion at 2SER.com, and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Oliver Featherston, Arwen Cross and James Miller. I produced Diffusion in a room. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>